Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 55. We'll follow Dr. William Somerville on his way home from the expedition you heard about last episode, and there's a lot of action. They had entered Greek Kwa country by November 21st and made their way towards Dittokong cautiously. First, they sent a guide ahead to inform the horde of the brick walls of our arrival and to invite them to come to our encampment. The whole fate of our expedition depended on the impression that our messenger should make upon his countrymen. No doubt they waited anxiously. Remember, this long and arduous trip was ostensibly to buy cattle from the Griqua and the Tswana, and so far all they had found was drought. Things were not looking very good. On the evening of the 21st of November, 1801, the messenger returned with information that the chief would see them, but not before the people had fled as the messenger was wearing western clothes. That tells you something. The people who visited in European outfits were usually raiding or pillaging. On his first appearance, they fled owing to the circumstance of his wearing clothes instead of a caross or skin cloak. Although his skin was his usual apparel, his vanity would not yield to the remonstrances made, for he made a point of borrowing a coat and breeches from some of our people, in addition to which a broad-brimmed hat gave him the aspect of a boor, than which the appearance of the devil would be less dreaded by the natives of South Africa. The effect of the Dutch colonization of the Cape had spread far and wide by now. They were more than a hundred miles past Grikutan and close to Kurman. Back in 1801, and eventually Chief Moshlabangwe agreed to speak to the colonists. He was born in 1745 and died in 1812 and was the son of the Batlaping Chief Mashu and his third wife, who was a Kora. The Batlaping broke away from the Rolong a little earlier in the 18th century. The people of the chief of Malabangwe had been tracking the colonists for a few days and were expecting them. There was the usual exchange of goods to show faith. The brother of the chief gave the travellers a bag, or leather bottle as they called it, with clotted cream milk and the trekkers handed over pieces of tobacco. The Batlaping were cautious as they sat under the expedition umbrellas. It was the advanced group who were testing this group of colonists. No questions were asked by us, but such as tended were calculated to remove any suspicion they might still entertain. Curiosity on our part would inevitably have been ascribed by those who knew nothing of white people but cruelty, murder, and robbery to some mischievous intention. Somerville writes this matter-of-factly in passing. It's the first recorded notes of people making contact deep inside Southern Africa that began cementing future relationships. It's the experience of these frontiers, violent and ever-changing, that we hear through these words. The circumspection necessary to be used in our intercourse with the natives arose from the horrid outrages that had been committed upon them by renegados from the settlement of the Cape, but above all by a bastard named John Bloom. That, of course, was Jan Bloom. Once again, our story intersects with this man. He who had been born about 1775 and died about 1858, the son of a Taibosch Korana woman and a German VOC soldier who had fled the colony and became the leader of what was now called the Springbok clan of Taiboshes, the main stem of the Korana. They had settled at the confluence of the Orange and Hartebius River, and by 1799 their exploits had left no one in any doubt but what they were up to. Back with Somerville, it was Sunday, November 22nd, 1801, and a thunderstorm pelted the expedition with hailstones about half an inch in diameter 
and then they spotted something miraculous. About a mile or two from our encampment was the most copious spring of good water that I ever met with in Africa, Somerville writes. In 200 yards from its source it spreads to the width of 30 or 40 feet. Several sources were united within a very small distance from each other, one of which flows from a cavern formed by the position of large blocks of rock in which very pure crystals of spar are to be seen. The cool, refreshing and clean water was a godsend on this Sunday. The confluence and the rocks and perfectly cool water were in what is now known as Kuruman or Kudumani in Setswana. As was the way, the brother of the chief Molohakangwe was sent to talk to the visitors. Serukuti, as he was called, was not a favourite of visitors. Later, Birchill would call him loquacious and noisy. All, of course, to obfuscate his intelligence gathering, and he inquired why Somerville and his party had travelled all the way from Cape Town to see them. It wasn't to plunder or rape? asked the young man. So the chief's brother and his attendants joined the travellers for supper under the umbrella as the sun set over the beauty of the Kurumani pools. In the evening, after having copiously supped, they treated us with some of their music, which, however, they said was not complete without the aid of female voices. Somerville then explained what he heard. The leader first sings a line unaccompanied, which is immediately repeated by all the party in full chorus. The subject is something relative to their herds, as far as could be gathered from the interpreter. The moon, which happened to shine, was praised, then the excellence of certain cattle, the spotted red, the white-bellied. Then the fortune of those who possessed such treasures was compared with the misery of those who were destitute. Serukuti praised the hartebeest, and tobacco, and victuals, and then he was presented with a few beads handed to the brother of the chief, and everyone left. The next morning the expedition set off in a northeasterly direction, partly along the course of the fountains following the Kudumani, until they reached Maputi. They had seen hartebeest, ostriches, steenbok, dakers, and quachas. The latter, of course, was the creature that would be hunted to extinction. On Thursday, 26th of November, they arrived at Ditokong, eight weeks after leaving Cape Town. There they finally met the chief Molohakangwe, seated on a skin laid on the ground, surrounded by around 30 of his closest advisers. He was wearing a plate of copper as an earring which reached his shoulder, and he said he'd been expecting the visitors for three days. The chief rose, and they were led to a thatched house with an overhanging roof. The ceremony here began by seating ourselves on the ground to partake of some sour milk that the women set before us in an earthen pot, exceedingly well formed and baked, said Somerville. Until the evening, the enclosure in which the house stands was crowded with new spectators every ten minutes. The children seemed to have the most fun with these visitors. As they walked among the houses later, the youngsters played a kind of game like hide-and-seek. We accordingly walked about among the houses and visited many to the great annoyance of the children who screamed and fled the moment they saw us. Expedition leader Truter had his snuff-box emptied, for taking snuff was never more fashionable amongst the French than it is here, noted Somerville. Men and women are equally addicted to this dirty practice. All wear and carry small pieces of wood about the size of a walnut, hollowed out and tied to their necklace in which they carry their snuff. Some have a circular piece of fur, amongst the hairs of which they sprinkle their snuff, and then apply it to their nose. He was not very impressed, although this practice continues in parts of southern Africa today.
The ladies put a pinch in the palm of their hand and sometimes draw it up through a reed. They use a very subtle powder of tobacco of their own growth, ground between two stones and mixed with a portion of wood ashes, which forms a very pungent snuff. This party of colonists and Setswana snuffed and coughed together for around ten minutes. After a time visiting the homes at this large town, Somerville's party returned to their wagons that evening. Many earthen vessels of sweet milk were sent to our tents, and crowds of people came to survey a site so new to them. Being a doctor and trained in physiology, the venerable scientist then tried to describe the people around him, and he was amazed at their diversity. I have never seen any Africans so difficult to describe as the inhabitants of this place. The other tribes vary prodigiously one from the other, but a general cast of countenance of stature pervades both sexes, equal to that which is seen in the crowded exchange of London, he marveled. These people were diverse, of course, because of the historic cross-section of race and ethnicity. They were at the crossroads of southern Africa, a blend of clans, both ancient and new. Some of the males are enormously tall, but well-proportioned. One young man measured six and a half feet. Others are very short. Every variety, from meager to corpulent, is to be found. Some are of a swarthy hue, and others are certainly as fair as a native of Portugal. There in the far northern Cape in 1801 were the past and future of southern Africa, arraigned in one of the biggest settlements on the subcontinent. Their hair fashion was also distinctive. Men would shave their hair in front of the temple bare and then shape a stripe an inch broad around the crown of their head. They would also pour a quantity of melted sheep fat mixed with red ochre and iron ore and then rub into their hair. This would sparkle red in the sun and glint. The women also shaved their hair, but in a different way. They would shave a circular spot on the crown, and their hair would hang down around this shaved area, then knit the stands together using the same iron ore, ochre, and fat combination used by the men. In terms of dress, the butlerping women would wear a cloak of skin loosely tied across their breasts, sometimes leaving an arm free. They would also roll up smaller skins together around their waists. Then another skin would hang to their knee from behind, while in front they'd wear a piece of skin cut into narrow thongs which would reach all the way to their ankles. Around their ankles they'd have tendons of the neck of cattle, and the well-off would have massed rings of copper around their ankles too. Women would wear strings of beads around their neck and elephant tusk rings as bangles, along with more rings of rhino hide and copper wire, and pregnant women would wear a second large skin like a gown a maternity gown. Men would bind what Somerville called a handkerchief of calfskin around their loins, passing between their legs. They'd also done a loose cloak of skin tied around their shoulders, and that type of skin was very important. You see, the hunting prowess of the wearer would be advertised by the type of animal skin. Successful hunters would also place bladders of jackals they killed in their hair, and necklaces of beads and thongs on which they'd also hang their snuff boxes. They all had a small pin or bodkin made of iron, which they would use to sew their skins like a shoemaker's awl, and they'd also use this to dig thorns out of their feet. Many would carry a knife they manufactured themselves. Remember, there was iron ore all over this region. It usually was the size of a small sword with a double edge and a horn handle, sheathed in a case made of two thin pieces of wood tied together. 
Some men used a handle and scabbard made from ivory and adorned themselves with ivory, copper and skin rings and bracelets as well. Their shoes were a sole of buffalo or bullock hide, a little larger than the foot, and attached with thongs crossing each other, passing behind the ankle and between the toes, a bit like a mix between a classical Greek shoe and the modern outdoor pair of leather slip-slops. Each person in the community was expected to be able to manufacture these items themselves, their shoes, their skins, their carosses, the cloaks, knives and all. The women built the houses and cut all the acacia and reeds and the other materials used in home construction. Women would also make the pots, then fire them and carry the fuel and water to the homestead and grow the crops. The young boys would herd the cattle and after reaching manhood would milk the cows, prepare the skins, sew the cloaks and dresses for the women. Somerville watched with great interest as a group of men finished a cloak meant for the son of the chief. After sewing the garment, six men would sit in a circle, rubbing and softening the skin on their knees. While they did so, they would imitate the actions and calls of different animals, jackals, lions, and finally vultures, as they beat the leather with their hands until it was extremely soft and pliant. Dittikong featured a large sea of houses built with long-term use in mind. Each house was surrounded by a fence or a hedge of karoo mimosa, about four feet high, and placed so closely in the ground that daylight can hardly be seen through them, wrote Somerville. The bottom of the hedge was two feet thick and tapered towards the top, and a narrow door was left through which only one person could pass at a time. That was the main entrance to the courtyard, which was paved with cow dung and clay. On one side was a hut with pillars of wood supporting a portico, and inside the house was a second wall enclosing a circular space in which the master of the house would sleep. The valuables stored in the house were placed in this room. The courtyard itself featured an enclosed spot for a fireplace, and within the house, between the outer wall and the master apartments, so to speak, there was another fireplace in case of bad weather. Grain bins would be placed on raised platforms in the hut, which had no windows, by the way. The household utensils included winnowing trays made of grass or reeds, skin bags, mats and milk sacks, wooden stools, milk pails and spoons, or what was called the calabash cups, along with bottles of oven-baked clay and scoops. The house would be thatched with grass closely matted together and sewn onto the boughs, pretty much as we do it today. The Batlaping did not really smoke their food, though, like the Khoi. They did practice circumcision, like the Amatkosa, and polygamy was sanctioned and in common use. Yet, Chief Molohakangwe only had two wives. One was a Khoi woman. In terms of matchmaking, the parents would meet and decide whether or not the couple agreed. If girls were betrothed before they were old enough, they would stay at home until they were in their teens. Once the consent of both parents were obtained, ten oxen were paid to the father and two to the mother. One would be slaughtered for the marriage feast held at the cow pen of the parents. There would be many guests who would dance away in the heat of the sun. The cow pen would fill with women on one side singing and clapping their hands, while the men danced about in the middle of the ring, throwing themselves into various postures based on the music. Each man would perform a unique dance, moving his entire body and then leaping as high as possible before embarking on this strenuous wedding pastime that would daub their bodies with grey clay. Eventually, Somerville and Truto were growing a little concerned. They'd spent a few days here by now and yet could not see a vast herd. Given how the Batlaping regarded cattle, 
bartering some was going to be difficult. However, it was also clear that they were hiding herds from the visitors. Somerville also noted with some surprise that even the daughter-in-law of the chief would trudge daily to the field armed with her hoe, then in the evening would return after a hard day's work in the broiling sun with a load of wood on her head. While the butlapping suffered from various afflictions including typhoid, sexually transmitted diseases were still unknown amongst them at this stage. Of course, this would change over the coming years. So eventually, Somerville and Truter cut their losses and decided to trek back to Cape Town. Finding that all hope of procuring a quantity of cattle likely to be of service to the British settlement had failed, we were convinced that the information upon which the expedition had been formed was erroneous. The number of cattle owned by the Batlaping was, in Somerville's words, very far from being great compared with that of their owners. Initially, they wanted to head further north into the interior, but they were convinced by the Batlaping that this would be a dangerous journey. Finally, they took leave of the chief, and as they left, heading southwards, the town turned out to witness their departure. The rising grounds were covered with men, women and children who had come out to see the wagons pass. He called this moment, Consolation in the midst of mortification. So, this group retraced their steps heading back to the Khatal Kamu, or Skull of the Bullocks. The fountain near Kuruman, then down the river Mudkhoring, where they shot a quacha. The days were numbered for these poor beasts. They were a bit like zebras. Their skin featured variegated lines rather than stripes, which descended from the mane down the neck. Behind the shoulder blade, there were spots intermingled with the stripes. The ears were short, their belly pure white. They were doomed. Eventually, on the 6th of May, 1802, Somerville and Truta's six wagons made it back to Cape Town after seven months spent travelling slowly across the vast southern African semi-desert of the Northern Cape. Thus ends these two episodes, focusing on some of the first written descriptions of the people across the Kharib or Orange River, who we heard about in the first few episodes of the series. We learned quite a bit about what they were doing day to day at this point, which helps fill the gaps that we created earlier with both oral history and archaeology as our guides. Next, we'll be back in the Eastern Cape because the British were about to face an uprising again as their government planned to hand Cape Town back to the Dutch. It wouldn't be long, of course, before the British would be back, but this period has some interesting moments where the new Batavian Republic ruled at the Cape was a sort of golden moment and cast a vision of the future. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. To contact me, you can head off to my website, desmondlatham.blog or deslatham.com. You can email me there or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. Until next, tootsies.